Welcome back to the Solas Cultura Zoom Church. I'm Pastor Mike. And today I'm going to jump into a topic that I would normally not address for a while and take the time to, to logically build up to it by addressing other preliminary, preliminary topics, other prerequisite topics first. Um, and this, this topic, this presentation today would make a lot more sense if you came further down the line to visitors and people that have just recently come across my channel uh, and have listened to the first few episodes. Uh, but um, the reason I'm doing that is because there are certain issues that came, have come up recently within my own church community. And, and I feel like I need to address these issues. Uh, so I apologize to, 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 the, to those following my channel that, that have had no other contact with me before this, uh, because this, this will seem kind of uh, like I'm jumping around and there's, there's holes in my reasoning that I'm not dealing with and I'm not addressing. Uh, because not only am I skipping ahead, but I'm also squeezing several presentations into one as well. Now, if you prefer, you could skip over this presentation and wait till I come back to it later down the line after I've had a chance to really lay a better foundation. And then this presentation will make more sense um, as I take my time to, to explain things a little better. Uh, but again, uh, if, if you'd rather just go ahead and, and go through it, that's that's fine as well. Just understand that uh, I, am, I am leaving certain logical holes in the presentation because I just don't have the time to address them. Uh, for people that have discovered this video first and haven't heard my previous sessions, especially the first eight videos in the series, then I recommend that you listen to that as well because I'm going to assume uh, that the listeners know what I'm talking about from, from my first uh, few presentations. Okay, um, now in the first set of presentations, I've described what I call the Sola Scriptura methodology. And uh, um, for those that need a review, uh, Either watch the first eight videos on my YouTube channel, the Solas Culturalism Church channel. Uh, download the manuscript. It's at uh, bitly Scriptura manifesto um, Or uh, listen to the podcast. Look for Solas Culturalism Church on any of your podcast apps. Uh, and if you go through the first eight presentations, um, you should be a little better prepared for some of the things I'm seeing in this video. But again, like I said, I am skipping ahead. So even then, um, you might feel a little bit lost, but hopefully uh, people will be able to follow. Now, um, <clears throat> what I've tried to introduce is what I've called the Sola Scriptura methodology, which, which I've argued is something of a unique methodology because the people, the few people that still hold to the idea of Sola Scriptura actually don't mean the Bible only. When they use the phrase Sola Scriptura, they, they include uh, the early tradition, the church fathers, the councils, and some of the other uh, early elements in the Christian church as part of their uh, hermeneutical process. So I've tried to argue that there is a way to do a Sola Scriptura methodology that doesn't rely on this element. And um, the key to, to deciphering a, a fully Sola Scriptura theology is to to get the metaphysics from scripture rather than to bring it from external sources. So by metaphysics, we mean our understanding of reality beyond the things we can see and touch and feel. So, you know, we live in this physical world with a physical universe with real planets and real, 
tangible things that we can you know touch and, and see and, and smell and so on but often as christians and and just religious people in general believe that there's more to life than just this that there's a there's another reality there's a spiritual reality and for different people from different religions their understanding of that reality takes different forms uh, and uh, for a lot of christians they get parts of their understanding about the, the metaphysical aspect of reality from uh, from philosophy rather than from scripture. So it's either the classical philosophies coming from Plato and Aristotle or some of the more modern perspectives coming either from like uh, Descartes and, or Kant or, or later others, other philosophers on the line, including some of our um, scientific paradigms that that have been developed over the past hundred or so one two three two hundred years or so I'll say so um, for for the approach I'm trying to work with uh, this approach calls for trying to decipher the metaphysics from the scripture itself and once that is done um, it attempts to decipher a macro narrative or a big story a big a big picture that ex that within which everything that takes place in scripture, happens. So, so in order for us to be able to do spiritual theology, we need a macro narrative. We need, we need to understand some kind of story within which to interpret everything else. And I've argued that the, the one macro narrative that seems to fit, fit the best with scripture is the cosmic conflict macro narrative, as opposed to some of the other ones that Christians have used in the past. Uh, the other element of the self-scriptural methodology is that we work with the idea that there's limited errancy in scripture as opposed to inerrancy. So a lot of Christians that, that try to do theology with the Bible argue for inerrancy, that there's, there's no errors in the Bible at all. And I've argued that that position is not necessary and it creates problems for theology, but that it's possible to allow for errors in scripture because when we take the Bible as a whole, uh, the rest of the biblical data could correct any individual errors that might exist. So these are some key differences between the approach that I've proposed in, in the manuscript and in the first videos and the approach that other Christians usually use. And uh, everything else I'm doing on this channel uh, attempts to build on that foundation that I've laid in those early videos. Okay, so coming back to the cosmic conflict macro narrative. Um, this cosmic conflict story where there's a battle between good and evil, and this battle explains everything else that takes place, why there's uh, sin and suffering in the world, uh, why God doesn't interfere uh, very much, if, if sometimes even at all, to, to stop all the evil things that take place. Uh, I don't have time to get into that now. I've discussed it a little bit in the paper, and I've recommended some reading material for those that want to get a fuller picture of what I mean by the cosmic conflict. But... Um, I want to take the question of politics through the lens of the Sola Scriptura methodology and specifically this, this approach um, of looking at scripture through, from the perspective of this cosmic conflict. So I've argued that within this framework of a cosmic conflict, uh, the reason we are here in this world of sin is because this is a, a demonstration that attempts to inoculate non-omniscient, so basically God is omniscient, but the individuals, the beings that he creates, the beings that God has created are not omniscient. They're not able to, to understand all the ramifications of everything that takes place. And because of that, they don't have a full understanding of right and wrong and, and what needs to be done. 
they have to take God at his word. Um, and because God has given created beings free will, the possibility exists for them to turn away from God and to try to do things, to go in a different direction and try to do things differently. And this human experiment, so to speak, uh, the thousands of years that we've been here on earth where uh, you know, sin has existed and suffering and evil have existed, the purpose of this is to inoculate all created beings so that when God puts an end to human history and there's, he puts an end to sin, it's never going to come up again. And God does not need to take away our freedom of choice. Uh, and, and we will have the freedom at any point for the rest of eternity to choose to, to, to go back to sin if we wanted to, but we, we would never want to because we've had the opportunity to see the effects of sin and to make a choice now whether we, we want to serve God or, or, or go the other way and, and uh, commit to, to being in the state of rebellion. So we are here because um, this is, this is uh, God's way of making sure all the lessons that need to be learned about what sin is about are learned now so that it never needs to be, uh, it never needs to happen again. Now there's three elements that are under discussion, they're under evaluation within this cosmic conflict. And those three elements are, what is the character of God? You know, God is this, this uh, being that is way above anything we can understand, you know, as created beings. And it doesn't only apply to us, it applies even to angels and whatever other created beings there might be. Because they're created and because they're not omniscient, they, they have no way to really understand God fully because God is such a superior being to all of us. So because of this, we don't fully know what God's character is. Is God good? Is God loving? Is God, does God have our best interest in mind or does he have ulterior motives? And this is something that is in question within this great controversy. And at the same time, uh, there's this uh, evil or, or opposing being uh, that the Bible calls at times Lucifer or Satan. And he has come from the perspective that you no, know, God shouldn't be trusted. God is, is not, does not have our best in, intentions in mind. And he has, he has tried to, to pull creative beings towards his side of the, of the contest, his side of the debate. So we need to, throughout this demonstration, throughout this experiment of sin, we need to decipher God's character, the character of Satan and the character of sin itself. And sin has to be kept as something separate from Satan in the sense that sin would exist even if Satan wasn't there. Uh, if Satan had a rebel against God, somebody else might. And one of the things we need to figure out is uh, why, you know, what is sin? Do we, is it good? Is it bad? Is it, um, is it something that we should stay away from? And that's why we're here within this, this period of time of, of human suffering, this, that, you know, this thousands of years we had of human history, that is the point for, for why this is taking place. Okay, so um, because this is a type of demonstration, there's been several events that have happened over, this, over the millennia. You know, obviously at some point during God's process of creation, there was a rebellion that took place in heaven before things came down to our world because, uh, you know, the Bible does talk about Satan rebelling against God, taking with him a lot of, a lot of God's angels, 
and and this this conflict seems to have started prior to the creation of humanity and then we have the creation story adam and eve and all that uh, and then adam and eve choose to sin and rebel against god and join satan's side of the conflict uh, and then we in the bible have the human history developing uh, during the period before the flood and somehow as this time is passing things get to a point where god decides that it is not possible to get accurate data from the demonstration if things are allowed to continue the way they were going. So apparently uh, the, the conditions of things before the flood had gotten so bad that essentially it wasn't really helping anymore. It wasn't really uh, contributing to the question for why humanity and sin were allowed to exist to begin with. So at that point, God puts a stop to, to that unfolding of history through the flood. Um, he saves Noah and his family, and then he starts over. There's some changes there. You know, uh, he, he changes people's languages. People spread out all over the earth. Uh, they don't live very long. Um, and anyway, history continues then. And, you know, there's another opportunity for, for God to make his case, so to speak. And now you have... He calls the patriarchs, you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then the, you know, the 12, his, Jacob's 12 sons. They go to Egypt, time progresses, the, the nation of Israel is formed, and now God calls, calls Israel. And all through this time, God is preparing to make his case, while Satan is making his case for his side of the conflict. So as the demonstration is unfolding, evidence is being accumulated on both sides of the conflict and it's building up to to a point where the rest of the the universe and everybody involved all all intelligent beings at some point can come together and say okay let's look at the evidence and let's see who's right and who's wrong in this conflict let's see if if it makes sense to uh, ever consider the possibility of sin or not and what God is aiming to do is that at some point where all the data is in and, and all intelligent beings can look at that data, make their evaluation, they will recognize that, you know, they never want to do this again. And then for the rest of eternity, there's not going to be another conflict. There's not going to be another um, falling into sin, another, another rebellion or anything like that. So as the evidence is being compiled on both sides of the conflict, we get to a point of climax and that happens at Calvary. So God, through the person of God, the son, becomes incarnated as a human being and lives amongst us and, and lives a kind of life that reflects the character of God and then willfully gives up his life for us. And essentially at this point in time, this is about as good a demonstration of the character of God as at least humanity is going to be able to get. Because how much more could be done for us to understand God except for God to actually come and live here among us, to, to you know, be born here, to grow up here, to, to sit down and eat with people and go for walks with them and talk to them as he did with the disciples and so on. So essentially that was the, the high point of what God was trying to do to give humanity as well as the rest of the universe uh, an ex, uh, 
a demonstration of who he is and the fact that he willfully went all the way to death and you know went through all that suffering without without rebelling without you know turning around and, and punishing the the those that were causing him pain uh, it gave the entire universe a very significant glimpse into who god really is and the fact that he is a loving and self-sacrificing god and it also gave the universe a picture of who satan is and how determined he is to to harm everyone including his own creator as long as he could get his way in the process but the question then is why are we still here so if if we look at what this demonstration was aiming to accomplish you know to understand for us to understand the character of god and of satan and of sin and if at calvary we had this this significant uh piece of evidence in this demonstration by you know god becoming incarnate and living among us and sac sacrificing himself for us and having a chance to see everything that satan did to make that happen uh, we could have we could have expected history to end right there because um, many of the elements that needed to be explained and understood were uh, demonstrated quite, quite well within those events. But history has continued on for another two thousand years, and the question is why is that? Why did that happen? When you know the character of God and Satan were displayed fairly well at the cross, why are we still here? Um, and I. I would say that there was more to be understood regarding the character of sin. So we had gotten a good picture of the character of God and a good picture of the character of Satan, but we still needed to understand more about what sin was all about. And one of the ways that God intended to reveal this to humanity was, and not just to us again, to all the angels and any other created beings watching what's going on here, one of the things that needed to to be given time was to see what would happen, what would humanity do, do with the gospel? So basically, God did something unexpected, something out of the ordinary. He, he gave a display of love and kindness that uh, went above and beyond what anyone would have expected him to do. And the question is, how is humanity going to react? And now we get to the point where we have to apply some kind of hermeneutic of of history for the past 2000 years since these events happened. Now, it's interesting, I had a conversation with uh, uh, another theologian a few days ago, his name was Am, uh, <laughs> I can't believe I just uh, lost his name. Ambrose is uh, the name of a fairly well-known theologian. Um, and he he mentioned, because he had read this, this paper I have written, he mentioned that if we're going to interpret biblical prophecy through a historicist lens, we need a hermeneutic of history. And at that moment, it kind of took me by surprise when he said that, but he's, he's very much right. He was very much right because, in fact, every one of the different models that I've described, different approaches to theology, different, different theological tradition with Christianity, they all have their own varied hermeneutic of history and their own understanding of how God was intending to to work within this past 2000 years and even going back further so um looking at it through the saw scriptural lens through this methodology that i've been trying to present here um now this methodology has significant differences from some of the other 
Christian methodologies because he has a different philosophical perspective. It's not coming at things from either the Greek philosophical perspective or the, the modern, uh, more modern perspective. So it's different philosophically, but it also depends on a certain interpretation of pro prophecy, which comes from the historicist lens where prophecy unfolds over history. And that gives us a certain uh, lens through which we look at Christian history. And looking at things through this approach actually gives us a somewhat pessimistic hermeneutic of history. In other words, what God is demonstrating to the past 2000 years since the cross is not something positive, like look, look what great things humanity can do once they have the gospel, once they, once they understand what God has been willing to do for them, but it's rather the opposite. The demonstration is to see how humanity actually misuses the gospel. It actually ends up taking the, the greatest display of divine love and self-sacrifice and converting it into a tool of oppression. So if we look at history through, through this particular lens, we actually see people understanding a little bit of what the gospel is about, understanding how much God loves humanity and, and his willingness to die for us, and yet somehow realizing that people can be manipulated through this, through this information. They can actually be brought to a point where they can be brought to believe in these things and then have that used against them so that um, it ends up being a, just another way to take advantage, another way to oppress people, another way to enslave humanity. And this past 2000 years have been something of a demonstration of how sin is so insidious that it actually takes even something as beautiful as the gospel and uses it to, to harm individuals and to, uh, to take advantage and control and oppress individuals. So if we look at the history of Christianity, rather than looking at it, when we look at it through this particular lens of the Sola Scriptura uh, uh, methodology, what we see is that Christianity, rather than being a force for good, it ended up being a force for evil. Um, and you know, to, to kind of use, use some of the biblical imagery to point this out, um, there are several places throughout the Bible where, where the, this uh, imagery is used, uh, including uh, you know, Old Testament books like uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I believe, Hosea, the book of Hosea. But in the book of Revelation, there's, there's a description of two different women. One woman is pure, uh, close with the sun. She's got the stars around her, her head and she's, she's standing on the moon and so on. So that is a, a pure woman that, that reflects God's people when they're following him and, and, and truly representing Christ to the world. And then there's this other woman later down, several chapters down the line, who is actually depicted as being evil and being adulterous and, and you know, being drunk with the blood of the saints and all these different things. So this two woman motif actually ends up being applied to, to history because uh, Christianity ended up becoming something very different than what we would have expected it to be based on the, on the message and the life of Jesus, its founder. Now, if we look at history, we could say that as history was unfolding, things were 
um, moving in a negative direction and, and, and Christianity was actually developing more and more into a, uh, an oppressive power. Uh, but there was this temporary interruption with the Protestant Reformation. It wasn't a full interruption. Things didn't get, the correction wasn't, didn't go as far as it should have gone. And in, in, a, in, in a sense, it's actually sort of done a U-turn and things are going back to the, to the way things were back during the dark ages. But there was this temporary interruption because it's allowed, it, it's made it possible for us to be here today and to have the freedom to think and talk about these things um, that's not something that we probably would have had if there never was a reformation. We'd probably still be um, going through the dark ages. We'd probably still think the way people 500 years from now, before 500 years in the past looked at things and the way they viewed reality. So uh, this is kind of a, a way to look at history uh, that lines up with the, with the perspective scripture has when approached through this particular lens. And uh, uh, it, it actually differs quite a bit from the way most other Christian traditions look at history. So let, let's kind of continue with that for, for a little bit. Now, taking a, a short break from, from the, the thoughts we just went over, um, if we look at the very earliest generations of Christians, you know, the, uh, Jesus was resurrected. He was taken up to heaven. The apostles started preaching and the church started growing and spreading. And for that first generation of Christians, most of them seem to have lived with the expectation that Jesus was actually returning very soon within their own lifetime. So they thought that they had a few more years to wait and, and Jesus would come back and take him, take him to heaven like he had promised. Uh, John 14 you know, he says, I got to prepare a place for you and I'll come again. Now, it seems that early Christians really believed this because at some point the apostle Paul feels the need to actually correct them. So in 2 Thessalonians 2, for example, he says, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't uh, be anxious and think that things are, are about to happen immediately because, you know, there needs to be this falling away first and a a series of events have to happen first before Jesus can return. Um, so hold off, you know, just don't, don't get too anxious or expect that everything's going to end within the very near future, a few years from now, because uh, there's still things that need to happen. Now, of course, a question someone might have is, you know, why didn't Jesus tell his followers, hey, there's going to be at least another 2,000 years before I'm ready to return? Um, you know, he could have warned them so that people wouldn't have false expectations. And I think that there could be several reasons for this. One is that uh, the coming of Christ has been a source of hope for people for the past 2,000 years. Uh, you know, just knowing that Jesus could return and it could happen anytime and, and he, you know, he could come and put an interruption to the suffering that, that has, has helped Christians all throughout this history. Um, to, you know, to, to not give up in times of difficulty. And especially that, that those first few generations of Christians who had to put up with a lot of uh, persecution and suffering and, and mistreatment, um, I think it, they benefited from, from this, this hope that 
that they could take hold of in, in the idea that Jesus was coming, coming back really soon. But another reason is also because um, it seems that God, not just here, but in, in previous situations, didn't reveal too much, uh, didn't reveal too many things in advance because he didn't want to, uh, to affect the direction that events were going to, to unfold in. So for example, you know, we could ask the same question about the first coming of Christ. In other words, why, uh, why don't we find in the Old Testament a more clear description of what things are gonna be like when, the, the, when Jesus comes the first time? You know, why do we not uh, see things about him, uh, you know, being persecuted and put to death and all this stuff that are so clearly articulated within the Old Testament that the disciples would not have needed to, to be, you know, led astray and to expect something else and then be disappointed. But the thing is, if those things were revealed in the Old Testament, then history would probably have unfolded very differently. Uh, the Jews would not have put him to death because they, they knew they would have been able to identify him as the Messiah, assuming that, that there were more descriptions about what the Messiah would be like that were more accurate or, or that were more specific, um, the Jews would, be, would have been able to identify him. They would definitely not have put him to death. And the unfolding of events would have been very different. So um, a lot of times we shouldn't expect for God to reveal too much about future events because that would actually affect the, the way things unfold. So it makes sense that the Bible doesn't give us, you know, specific dates as to when when the end of the world would come because that would affect how how things unfold from there um okay so that's kind of a, a, a small detour there just because i i know that this is a question that people ask but coming back to to the historical development you have people expecting jesus to return in their lifetime within the first century and also, you know, obviously the first, second, third generation probably continue to expect the return of Jesus very soon. Uh, the first 300 years or so, 200 years, a little over 200 years of Christian history, the church was usually under persecution. They were usually underground in the sense that they were, uh, you know, not accepted into the society in many places. So, um, you know, the church was in a, an unfavored position compared to, especially within the Roman Empire and um, within pagan society, the, the Christianity wasn't viewed very well. So that's the first two, and two or 300 years of Christian history. Uh, as the time passes and as Jesus doesn't return, people of course are starting to ask, okay, we expected Jesus to return back in the first century AD and now the second century has already passed and he's still not here. So maybe we misunderstood something. So that as the time passes, that question comes up, you know, why hasn't he come back yet? Like we expected, but there's also certain philosophical shifts that happen. And I've mentioned them in previous episodes uh, where people have started to adopt the uh, Platonic and Aristotelian concepts of God with, with God being detached from time. So once those philosophical differences were adopted, uh, it didn't make as much sense to think of Jesus's second coming as being something imminent because when you think of Jesus as God, 
God should not have a pers- uh, the same perspective of time we do. So, you know, because th- God is timeless, for us to say that Jesus is coming back in 10 years or 20 years, well, he could be coming back in a million years because there is no real concept of time. So, so all these philosophical shifts took place that kind of changed people's perspective on the question of, you know, what is happening? Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Um, so as time progresses, you know, at first Christianity is, is persecuted, but then Constantine gets converted. This happens around 310 or 12 AD. Um, and a few decades after Constantine, the rest of the empire comes along to the point where now Christianity becomes the religion of the empire, whereas before it was an underground religion. And this brings even further shifts in people's understanding of what God is, what God is doing and what, what, uh, how they are supposed to relate to the world around them. So um, this, I'm going to be reading a quote from somebody named uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, who is a, a significant early church historian. So he lives around the time of Constantine a little bit towards the, the end of his life, uh, or at least he outlives him. And uh, I'm gonna read several paragraphs here because it describes uh, a different perspective than the early Christian seems to have that started kind of taking hold uh, at this point in history. So we're still here around, around 300 AD. All right, so Eusebius's understanding of what had taken place in the person of Constantine left a mark on his entire work, and particularly in the way in which he understood the history of the church up to his time. The final draft of his church history did not simply seek to retell the various events in the earlier life of the church. It was really an apology that sought to show that Christianity was the ultimate goal of human history particularly as seen within the context of the Roman Empire. Similar notions had appeared earlier when Christian writers in the second century declared that all truth comes from the same Logos who was incarnate in Jesus Christ. According to such authors as Justin and Clement of Alexandria, both philosophy and the Hebrew scriptures were given as a preparation for the gospel. Also circulating was the idea that the empire itself and the relative peace that it brought to the Mediterranean basin had been ordained by God as a means to facilitate the dissemination of the Christian faith. Others such as Irenaeus had held that the entirety of human history from the time of Adam and Eve had been a vast process by which God had been training humankind for communion with the divine. What Eusebius then did was to bring together these various ideas, showing them at work in the verifiable facts of the history of both the church and the empire. The history that thus resulted was no mere collection of data or of antiquarian interests, but rather a further demonstration of the truth of Christianity, which is the culmination of human history. So I've read this passages from a book called The Story of Christianity uh, by Gonzalez. So essentially, Eusebius is looking at, at church history. You know, he, he lives very early on from our point of view, but from their point of view, they've already been through 300 years of Christian history. And, uh, you know, Jesus is not coming back. He hasn't come back yet, even though they thought he would come back a long time ago. Um, you know, 
Christianity had been persecuted all this time, but now all of a sudden the empire has changed and, and has adopted Christianity as, as its primary religion. And Eusebius is looking at all this data and he's developing a certain hermeneutic of history again. And his, his interpretation of history is that everything that has happened from the beginning of time up to that point was God's attempt to bring Christianity to the world and then spread Christianity everywhere. So essentially, the conversion of the empire was, was the first step towards the world becoming, uh, you know, first the empire becoming Christian and then through the empire spreading to the rest of the world to where Christianity essentially takes over and it encompasses everything. So we might say that <clears throat> this was the, the rise of what today we call post-millennialism. So in other words, instead of believing like uh, some of the earlier Christians did that, you know, Jesus was going to come back and interrupt human history and establish his own kingdom. Now things are shifting to where people start to think, well, maybe the, <clears throat> the way Jesus is establishing his kingdom is by Christianity becoming the established religion and, and spreading everywhere uh, <clears throat> through the political and through military means or whatever means necessary to the point where the entire world becomes Christian and then adopts Christian principles and becomes a better place by becoming Christians. And when, once the whole world is a better place, then Jesus finally comes and, and finds a much better planet than what the planet was when he left it. So it's almost like <clears throat> the world becomes such a nice place that, you know, Jesus could kind of step out of heaven and step into the world and, and it, it would be almost like a seamless transition because Christianity has transformed the world from within. So this is kind of a new mentality, a new way of thinking about what is happening uh, around them, what is happening in history that is starting to become adopted at this point in time. So essentially what I just said, here's my next note that, um, you know, Christianity will make the world a better place and um, essentially just take take over and, and conquer all the other uh, earthly powers and all the other religions to the point where everyone acknowledges the truth of Christianity and becomes a better person because they, they, they have this Christian, um, you know, they, they've adopted Christianity as the primary philosophy. Now, once somebody adopts this point of view, once somebody starts to believe that God's intention is for Christianity to spread and take over the way Eusebius envisioned it, then that creates an agenda because now the question is, what is the church supposed to do? Well, it's supposed to take Christianity to the rest of the world by whatever means. So it makes sense for the church to try to spread, to go further and further and to push its views on the rest of society because that's what God seems to want when you look at things from this perspective. <clears throat> so now this creates a certain paradigm regarding the church, the connection between church and state. So essentially the Catholic paradigm that kind of built build up from this perspective that uh, Eusebius and others were introducing is that God intended for the church to be over the state. So you had the earthly powers, you had the earthly governments, but the church was intended to sort of become the, the intermediary between God and humanity so essentially God will reveal to the church what he wants and the church will, will reveal it to, to earthly leaders and the earthly leaders, leaders will make sure that 
um, everything happens the way God intended for it to happen. And um, so there's this sort of hierarchy where the church is, is over the rest of society. That was the Catholic paradigm. Now, I'm going to skip ahead to the time of the Reformation and say, okay, how does the Re Reformation answer the same question? How, does the Reform how do the Reformers look at the question of church and state? So when the Reformation happened, there was a need to change the paradigm when it comes to the relationship between church and state, because if the earthly governments believed that the church was over them, then they would automatically fight against the Reformation. So what Luther did is introduce this other idea, the idea of the two kingdoms, where he said, no, the church is not over earthly powers. God is over the church, and that's one of his earthly kingdoms, and then God is over earthly governments, and that's his second kingdom, and he controls earthly governments directly, just as he controls the church directly, but the church is not over, over the, the governing powers. So he separated these two things, and this made it possible for um, several powerful leaders at that point in time, several sections of Europe to actually support the Reformation and provide protection for the reformers and for the Reformation faith to develop. Otherwise, um, the church would have probably, probably stifled the Reformation then, just the, as it had uh, other attempts out of Reformation in previous centuries. So this idea of the two kingdoms um, made provided the, the philosophical uh, foundation for some of the governments at that point in time around the 1500s to, to separate from the church and to create uh, sort of an, an, an independent uh, relationship, not with the Catholic church, but with the, the Protestant leaders. But even though looking at things from our perspective now, what Luther introduced was, was probably an improvement over what the Catholic Church had. It didn't go far enough. Um, and it's, it still created numerous problems. Like for example, uh, the Reformation actually ended up fragmenting as history progressed, you know, several decades after the Luther first uh, nailed his thesis. Um, different parts of Europe adopted different version of Protestantism. So some, some countries became Reformed or Calvinist, others became Lutheran. Uh, and then we had the Anglican faith beginning and developing um, in Britain. So you have different versions of Protestantism developing. And now the question is, which governments are being led by God? Because, you know, the if, if God controls the church and God controls the government, but the church has split and, and you know, some, some version of Christianity, some version of Protestantism is here and another version is here, is God controlling, is God in control of the states that support this version or the states that support this version? So, so it, it, this idea of Tukinda starts to become problematic. And it also creates problems from, from the perspective of the church being able to have a voice of critique when it comes to the state. So, you know, if the the government of, of a certain nation is doing certain things that it should not be doing, is the church able to say, hey, you guys are going in the wrong direction? Should Christians be able to still have a voice? But how do you do that when 
you teach that God is controlling those governments directly because they could just say, hey, you know, there's two kingdoms. You take care of your kingdom and we're taking care of our kingdom and we're just following God in this direction. So, so essentially Luther introduced this idea that was necessary at, at the point of the Reformation because the Reformation will probably not have survived without it, this idea of two kingdoms, but it also created quite a few problems down the line. Now, there was another uh, group within the, the, the context of the Reformation that I've mentioned in previous lectures called the, the radical reformers uh, or the Anabaptists. And they had a very different view. And they basically said, look, the world, earthly governments, earthly kings, anything that happens within the wider world has nothing to do with God. God has no interest in that stuff. God is only interested in his church and his church is basically separate from the world. They're, they're here temporarily kind of like exiles in a foreign land. Uh, they belong to the heavenly realm. They have nothing to do with this world. So they, they essentially took this separatist perspective when it comes to, to the question of church and state. So if we were to plot that on a graph, uh, and we said, okay, if on this side we have 100% divine control of human government, and on this side we have 0%, Catholics were the closest to the left, and then you have Protestants, um, you know, not as close to, to maybe 100% God controlling, but that, you know, their two kingdoms still allowed for quite a bit of uh, control in the sense that they still believed God was behind the earthly leaders, the earthly rulers and in, in directing them in what they were supposed to do. While at the other extreme, we have the Anabaptists who say, no, God has nothing to do with any earthly kingdom. Whatever they're doing is just purely done out of um, earthly concerns. They, they're following uh, fleshly or, or human, human uh, ambitions. And they, you know, it has nothing to do with God's, God's interest. God is just for, focused on the church. So for those that are watching the videos, you can see this graph um, where Catholics and Protestants are closer to, to one side while Anabaptists are on the other extreme. Uh, and I would propose that the biblical, the, the Sola Scriptura <clears throat> approach that I'm working with would be a lot more friendly to the Anabaptist side of the equation, even though uh, I do think that they went too far. And let me just quickly explain why I think they went a little bit further than we're supposed to go. Uh, and to use kind of an illustration, one of the arguments that, that people that take those extreme views usually take is that uh, Jesus was never involved in the politics of his time. So, you know, Jesus lived in a very corrupt kingdom. The Roman Empire was, was not a very uh, kind, uh, friendly empire to live under. And the Jewish nation was uh, considered basically close to slaves. They were a conquer nation. The Romans treated them not very well. So Jesus could have spent serious time trying to um, incorporate social reforms, trying to call for uh, you know, various kinds of civic action if he wanted to, but he didn't do that. He spent his time preaching about his kingdom, about another kingdom that he was, he was beginning and he didn't get involved in anything to do with government so uh, somebody coming from the anabaptist perspectives or somebody coming from from this sort of separatist perspective uh, would say hey if we're going to follow jesus's example then we need to just stay completely out of any any kind of politics uh, questions and just focus on um, 
doing the work that God has given us to do as his church. And I would say, yes, but to only to some degree, because there's a major difference between Jesus under Roman rule and us today living within a democracy. And the difference is that Jesus, in Jesus' time, there were no mechanisms in place for them to bring about social change. The only way to do it was to start a revolt. And essentially it was suicide because the Romans would have destroyed them. It would have, they would have uh, gotten rid of anybody trying to make changes by force. Well, we don't have that problem today. Today we live in a democracy where if, if there's something that uh, you know, is not right and we could see that some change needs to be made, we do have the tools in place. We can vote, uh, we can protest, we can do many different things that can bring about change. So there's a significant difference and therefore, I would say that on this graph that I have here, um, even though um, coming from the Soa scriptural perspective, we should agree a lot more with the Anabaptists than we do with, with either the Catholic or the Protestant perspective, uh, we shouldn't go as far as they did. They took things to an extreme that we don't need to go with because things are different now in this respect. All right, so moving on. Um, I want to bring the, up the fact that there's actually a theological backbone to a lot of this uh, pers different perspectives regarding church and state as well. Um, and one of the key elements is the fact that the Old Testament church or the Old Testament nation of Israel, they had a certain relationship between the church and the state. And the, the typical way to, to think of that relationship is to call it a theocracy. So basically in Israel, uh, you know, God had established the kings uh, and then he had the priests, but he was actually um, directing the nation himself, you know, through the prophets, sometimes the priests. So, so, and then God had established the rules. He had established the, the Ten Commandments. He had established the different laws that the Israelites were to follow. So in that sense, you could say that the nation of Israel was built as a theocracy. So when Christians took a look at the Old Testament, a lot of times they said, okay, if God used, used the nation of Israel in, in this way uh, back then, then he's probably trying to do something similar within the Christian dispensation as well. But different Christian perspectives have kind of approached the question in, in different ways. So for example, for, from a, the Catholic point of view, uh, the way they made the Old Testament to New Testament transition is by sort of having the, most of those elements transfer over with, with certain modification into a New Testament uh, economy. So for example, the old, in the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish nation had its priests, right? The priests were offering sacrifices in the temple. They, they performed their various duties. And the Catholic Church has its own priests, and the priests offered the sacrifice of the mass, and they perform their rituals and have their, their various duties as well. So, so uh, many of the things in the Old Testament were transferred over into, into the Catholic uh, paradigm um, with, with certain modifications. And just like that was transferred over, the theocracy that the Old Testament had, where God was seen as being directly in control of the Jewish nation and, and working through the Jewish nation to, to uh, accomplish certain purposes. 
the theocracy within the Catholic perspective was transferred to the church. So now the church rules over the various nation or, or at least God's intention is believed to be for the Catholic church to, to spread and rule over the various nations of the world. So the, the theocracy as well as the rituals and, and uh, the priesthood um, transitioned over from the Old Testament to the New Testament in a certain way. Now, the theology behind this is, is what is known as a sacramental theology, which I don't have time to go into now, but I hope to do a video on this in the future. So essentially, the Catholics believe that the Old Testament rituals and ceremonies were prototypes of the sacraments in the New Testament era. And uh, because Jesus hadn't died yet at that point in time, the, the sacraments couldn't be there. They couldn't be in, in, in place. Um, but the rituals that they were doing pointed forward to those sacraments. So now uh, within the modern era, they, they have the, basically the fulfillment of the, the prototypes of the Old Testament. Okay, so that, that in a nutshell is kind of the Catholic perspective on how things shifted from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, obviously to do justice to the, the idea would take a lot more time. But in contrast with the, the Catholic perspective, we have the Protestant perspective um, that had to change somewhat because <clears throat> Protestantism adopted the idea of righteousness by faith. So they no longer had all these rituals and all these things that you had to do to be saved. And uh, they no longer had this concept of an ongoing step-by-step uh, -step growth into the faith. But basically you became a Christian by, uh, you know, receiving Christ and, and you were saved and, and, and you, you lived by faith and you weren't, there weren't any more works that you had to do to keep your salvation or to become safe to begin with. So once Protestants adopted this idea of righteousness by faith, the, the, one of the questions that came up is, what do we do with all the Old Testament things that people had, all the rituals, all the sacrifices? What was the purpose of that? Why, why did God expect them to do it? But the New Testament says we no longer have to do them. And in the New Testament, we're saved by faith. But in the Old Testament, they seem to be saved by all these works that they had to do. And, and uh, the way that um, Protestants, many Protestants answered this question was through the idea of, of the covenants. <clears throat> so basically what they would say is that God had different covenants or contracts with different groups of people throughout history. So with the nation of Israel, he entered this contract where they had all these different things that they had to do and to be saved, they had to follow all these rituals. So uh, all the laws of the Old Testament, circumcision, all the rituals and offerings and sacrifices and ceremonies and holidays, all these things were part of the requirements that they had to do and they had to perform to be able to be saved. Well, <clears throat> for Christians, all that was done away and we are saved by faith. So essentially the modality of salvation is viewed as being different for Christians as opposed to the Jews. <clears throat> and this is, this is known as covenantalism. Is, and it, it, it's not universally adopted by Protestants, but it's one of the ways Protestants attempted to resolve the question of how do I understand the Old Testament and all the things that people did in the Old Testament compared to what we need to do today. But by taking this covenantal approach to the Old Testament, 
it also raised the question of, of the theocracy of Israel. So if God <clears throat> worked to a theocracy within the Old Testament era, how does God relate to government in the New Testament era? And, and the idea was that, well, he, he evidently, God evidently does work to, through human government, so he must continue to work through hum, hum, human governments in the New Testament era as well. And that's one of the reasons that why this model of the two kingdoms seem to, seem to fit with uh, Protestant theology. So there's a correlation between the theology and, and the, the church state perspective of each of these groups. Now, in contrast with these two perspectives, there is another perspective that we can have, which is what I believe is, is the, the Soa Scriptura perspective and what would make sense within the framework we're working with, which is that all the elements in the Old Testament were symbolic. They didn't have any essential use in themselves. In other words, a person wasn't saved because they offered a, a, a lamb at the temple or because they kept some ceremony or some holiday or any of those things. They were saved by grace through faith, just as people are saved today. But those things have a symbolic meaning and they point it forward to Christ. And in the same way, the nation of Israel and the theocracy uh, didn't, wasn't what God, wasn't an example of the way God intended to work with humanity, but was just a temporary necessity. And I'll explain what I mean by this in a second. So uh, this approach, the symbolic approach, uh, or better called uh, the typological approach, essentially doesn't give, it, it takes the elements in, in the Old Testament economy not as having value in themselves, but as having value in what they, they point forward to. So, you know, there's several lenses here. One lens is the sacramentalist lens, where the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices were prototypes of the sacraments, right? So that's one lens. Another lens is the covenantalism lens, where those elements were necessary for the salvation of that group of people that are no longer necessary for the salvation of Christians. Now, other people don't have a lens at all. And that doesn't work either, at least for the Sola Scriptura perspective, because in the Sola Scriptura perspective, we have to have this uh, narrative in, within which we understand what takes place in scripture. Otherwise we can't do theology with the Bible alone. So within the Sola Scriptura methodology, there's several reasons why we cannot accept the previous lenses that we just mentioned. So we cannot accept sacramentalism because we have a different metaphysic, right? If you wanna, work with a sacramentalist perspective, then you have to believe that God is timeless. He's, he's in this different sphere of existence and that uh, the, 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 the human uh, entity is dualistic. They have a physical body and this immaterial soul. And the sacraments depend on um, this idea that the soul has some kind of connection with the divine and you need to kind of raise it closer and closer with the divine through the sacraments. But if you, if you abandon the metaphysics, then the whole concept of sacramentalism falls apart. So sacramentalism and Sola Scriptura have, have no way of working together. So we can dis dismiss that lens uh, when we think about this, this aspect of theology. Now, covenantalism is also uh, inadequate for the Sola Scriptura perspective because it doesn't fit the macro narrative. It doesn't make sense within the big picture of God is what God is trying to accomplish for him to have special covenants with different groups of people and have different modalities of salvation. So that doesn't work either. 
and and you cannot have no lens at all, like I said, because you need something that fits within this bigger story. So because of that, we use rather this typological approach. And the typological approach views the contract or the covenant. Covenant means contract. It views the contract as, as, a, um, as something that applies not to the individuals and their salvation, but to the nation as a whole. Okay, so basically the covenant is that God will bless and protect and preserve the nation of Israel if the nation of Israel is faithful to follow certain things, to, you know, to, to keep Yahweh as their God and not to incorporate idols into their worship and a series of other things that are listed in various places in the Old Testament where God explains what he, he wants his people to do. And then whenever God gets upset with his people, it's always because they didn't keep that covenant, but it applies to the nation as a whole. So basically, um, God has given them, uh, I'm going to skip ahead to the bottom of this uh, series of bullets here. Uh, there's a text in Romans 3, 1 that says, what advantage then has the Jew? Uh, and Paul says much in every way, because to them were committed the oracles of God, right? So essentially, God had committed to the Jewish nation this, this oracles, you know, whether it's the temple service, whether it's the law, whether it's the sacred writings, uh, the sacred history, and the messianic expectations. All these things were committed to the Jews. And if the Jews were faithful to hold down to those things, to, to not follow other gods, to keep the, the sanctuary service and the temple service running properly, according to the instructions that God had given, then God would bless him and take care of them and protect them from enemies and whatever else that they were concerned about. However, if there was a breach in the contract, as happened many times throughout Jewish history and the history of Israel, then there were gonna be consequences. So one of the first consequences was that the nation split in two. So after, after the reign of Solomon, uh, the, the, the kingdom divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And uh, around 700 BC, uh, several hundred years before the time of Christ, <clears throat> the Assyrians came over and basically took Israel, um, the other 11 tribes. So Judah was in the south, the other 11 tribes were in the north. The Assyrians took him and displaced them, basically deported them from that land someplace else and brought another group of people and had them and had them settle in that area. Um, and then a little bit later, Judah, which were the only ones left, they were taken into captivity to Babylon and they stayed there seven years. They came back and they had to deal with, uh, you know, other groups basically harassing them like, like the various Greek, um, powers coming through and eventually the Romans took over as well. So uh, all these different things happen because as much of the Old Testament explains, the Jewish people were not faithful to the covenant. So God punished them in various ways. But the one thing he did, however, in spite of all this is that he, he preserved at least the kingdom of Judah all the way until the time of Christ. So, uh, Essentially, the point of all this is that the reason God worked with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So, so we have a situation here where God is actually dealing not just with individuals, individuals who 
who are willing to submit to him and follow him and, and, and do what they're supposed to do. But God is working with, with an entire nation. So we're asking the question, is that God's, God's method of working? Is God the kind of God who likes to, to work with, with nations of people? And what we're seeing here is that this is more of an exception than a rule because God needed the nation of Israel in order to provide a historical context for the Messiah. So imagine, imagine if Jesus had not been born in Israel. Imagine if Jesus had been born in, you know, say Greece or in, in China or in, you know, Babylon or somewhere else. And after being born, you know, he, he grows up and, and, and still does many of the things he does, but the people there have no context to make sense of what is happening. They, they believe in all these other gods. They have a whole different way of looking at, at the world and a whole different theology. And they're not able to identify the Messiah because there, there's no expectation of a Messiah to come. So they just see him as some kind of miracle worker, some kind of, uh, you know, magician or something, right? But because Jesus was born in Israel, he was born within, he was born within a context where people expected that a Messiah should come. And they had all this previous understanding of, of what God was about because of the Old Testament writings. They, they had a, certain expectations about the Messiah. They had certain understanding of correct theology. And it, it was in this context that the Messiah could come and people can make sense of what is happening. So essentially, there was a reason why God worked with Israel, and that reason was because he needed this context for Jesus to come, so that when Jesus comes here, he can be recognized, and, and he can work with people that already have some, some basic knowledge of God that he could then send to spread the message of the gospel to the rest of the world. But once this happened, he doesn't need this, this special relationship with, with the nation of people anymore. Um, and now there's a switch in the covenant where God is no longer in a covenant with a nation, but he's in a covenant with individual believers. So Matthew 12, 21, 43, where Jesus is talking to, to the Pharisees and he tells, he gives this parable about the vineyards and, and so on. And then at the end he says, and the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. He's talking about that parable where the keepers of the vineyard were not giving the fruits to the owner. So, so the kingdom of God is taken from them and given to another nation. And then we have Peter who says things like, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. So God has worked with the nation of Israel, but we're not to take that as an example of, the, of, God, of what God in, intends to do in general, but that nation had a specific purpose and it accomplished his pur this purpose when Jesus came and he was able to be born within a context uh, where he was able to perform his mission and do what he needed to do. And people had some general sense of who God was and some general expectation of a Messiah to come so that he could build on that and work from there. Okay. Okay. So what about the question of God and government? Well, there's several things written in the Bible that we, we have to work with. And there's different ways to interpret it. So, for example, does God still work with human government? Uh, one section that spends a lot of quite a bit of time dealing with this is the chapter 13 of the book of Romans. So here's one uh, representative text. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which was established by God. Uh, 
another, another very famous proof text is the one in Daniel 2 that says, God changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and set up, sets up kings. So people reading these passages might say, well, see, there you go. The Bible says that God is still in control of, of earthly governments. He still makes decisions about who is king here and who is king there. Um, the governing authorities were put in place by God, and he's the one who decides who's in charge and all this stuff. But the thing is, there's more than one way to understand these passages. One way is to understand them as if God is directly controlling and micromanaging everything that happens in early governments. But another way of understanding it is that God has put certain parameters in place so that earthly governments stay within those parameters and don't, don't go and do something that's, that's way different than what God wants them to do. But as long as he stay, the earthly governments stay within those parameters, uh, the events are left to unfold whichever way things unfold. Um, and if we, if we take the stricter approach, the one where God controls everything, it becomes a problem because you, then you say, well, look at this particular dictator here and this particular leader there and look at all the evil things they have done. But if you say, well, yeah, but God put him in place because God controls everything, then, then you make God responsible for all the things that individual has done. So the, it seems that the better way to understand some of this passage you know, in the New Testament is to, to see them as in God being ultimately in control of what's happening and not specifically micromanaging or specifically having a certain uh, control or a certain um, bond between himself and, and the earthly rulers. So essentially, if we look at it from the, the wider perspective of this cosmic conflict, God wants this demonstration to unfold in such a way so that it produces meaningful data. In other words, he wants the entire universe to, to be able to step back when it's all over and to say, okay, what have we learned from what has taken place? And if ever the earthly rulers or maybe Satan and, and his angels uh, decide to move events in a certain direction where the demonstration uh, stops being useful because for whatever reason, the data is not very meaningful anymore, then, then God puts some limits on that. For example, one thing somebody could do today is, you know, they could detonate a bunch of nuclear weapons and destroy most of humanity, right? Now, God is probably going to prevent something like that from happening, even if somebody uh, was able and in a position to do it, because that wouldn't really help anything with, with this demonstration. If, if the majority of if humanity is destroyed or, or, or all of humanity is destroyed, it would do nothing for what God is trying to accomplish, right? So, so you know, Satan as well could, could probably do all kinds of things that would, would end up skewing the data and affecting the demonstration. So God has to put certain limits in place from that to happen. So in that sense, God is in control. And what these passages are telling us is that as Christians, we're to submit to the realities we live in and put up with the, with the persecution or distress or whatever things that we don't like because ultimately God is in control and he has allowed these things to happen. And we're here within this, whatever context we're in and uh, there's nothing we can do to change it. So it doesn't make sense for us to go out and, and, and for example, 
you know, in some country where the government is, has taken uh, a very strict government has taken over, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense for somebody to go out there and put their lives at risk, trying to change things. Uh, it would be much more useful for them to, to you know, submit to whatever um, authorities are in place and to, to do their best to spread the gospel and try to help other people. Uh, because ultimately God is in control of all this stuff. And if, so, if something is allowed to happen, that means he hasn't yet crossed those parameters, those, those boundaries, and God is okay with letting it happen. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't try to force things or we shouldn't try to change things. Uh, and I got to be careful how I say this, because there are situations where in, in the, the possibilities are there. And if, you know, if we are given the possibilities to make something better, we should. But in most cases, um, the only thing that would result from, from people trying to bring about changes that they end up killing themselves in the process because the governments, uh, you know, will end up uh, arresting them or, or, you know, killing them or whatever. And that's not really furthering God's kingdom. And that's in most cases, not what we are called to do. So, so this passages can be interpreted in more than just one way. Um, um, now, some some other <clears throat> some other passages that need to be taken into account um, are, for example, where Jesus is in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, "Hey, you know, all these accusations are raised against you. Why aren't you saying anything?" And Jesus says, "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight." Now, this is a meaningful statement because it tells us a little bit about how God intends to move forward after the time of the cross. Uh, another passage that's significant is in, again, in, in Daniel chapter two, where he says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them unto an end. So basically God's plan is not to build up the earthly kingdoms to the point where they're good enough or Christian enough to, to run the world for him. But rather, God is going to allow things to unfold to a point where he just puts an end to these kingdoms. He crushes them and starts over with something completely different that's much better. So there's, there's an important difference in perspective regarding what God is, God's plans are for humanity. Is he working with humanity to make the world into this great place? Or is he just letting things unfold to a certain point after which he puts a stop to it and starts something completely different? that has nothing to do with the principles of human government. Um, so based on this perspective, the Sola Scriptura perspective, looking at a lot of this data, <clears throat> after the time of the cross, God is no longer working with nations. He doesn't have favorites anymore. He, his concern is the entire planet. His concern is all the nations of the world. And what he's trying to do is take the message of the gospel to them. Whatever work God intended to do with a nation, it was finished with Christ. He needed the nation of Israel. He needed it for a specific purpose to create an environment into which the Messiah could be born. But now that the Messiah has been born, now that Jesus lived his life, he completed his mission, he gave his life, he went up to heaven, um, that that whole task is finished with and God doesn't need to work with, with human entities anymore in terms of government. Now he's using individual believers to go out and, and spread his message to the world. So now 
there are no longer favored nations, so to speak, because God is working with the entire, the, the world as a whole. Um, and here's some, some passages I work with that. He says that, you know, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor there, is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This difference between Jew and Gentile was done away. The difference between different nations is done away. Christian nations, non-Christian nations. Everybody is being called to come to Christ and to become one in Christ Jesus, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, regardless of where they are geographically from. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, in the Saladian of Mark, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Other, other books have the same gospel commission, go and preach it to every creature, to everybody in, under heaven. Um, Ephesians says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So when God was working with a single nation, he had to put things in place to preserve that national identity. So you have things like circumcision and various rituals and various things that, that kept the Jewish people separate from, from the rest of other societies around them. But that middle war of partition is broken away now in Christ and everybody's called to, to be God's people now. There is no longer an issue of nationality. Peter, uh, when talking about uh, um, the, the story with Cornelius, right? He, you know, he has that dream where the different kinds of meat come from heaven and God asks him to eat and he says, no, I'm not going to eat anything unclean. Finally, after the whole experience is over, it says, Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. So after all this time of thinking that uh, the Jewish people were special, that they were different, that they were especially favored by God, Peter comes to the realization that no, God is not a respecter of person. Anybody that fears him in any nation, anywhere in the world, um, God wants them and is working with them and, uh, and is drawing them to himself. Okay, so within this context, as we're talking about all this, all these issues about, well, you know, how is God, what is the connection between God and government? What is the connection between church and state? The question is, what about America? Is America a chosen nation? Did God especially select this place um, as, as being different than, than some of the other countries in the world and better and, and so on? And the answer is no. We've already established that God no longer has a chosen nation. So um, ne neither is America a chosen nation, neither, neither is Israel a chosen nation anymore. That was a temporary thing that, that had its purpose and that purpose was completed at the cross. So if America is not a chosen nation, can we say at least that America is blessed for being a Christian nation? So the, the, in other words, um, because America adopted Christian principles, because um, we've chosen to, to establish this, the government here following certain principles that we've, we've uh, adopted from Christianity, is God especially blessing this land because of that? And the answer here is also no, because the old world from which people came to America from, they were also Christian. They have been Christian for over a thousand years. So 
they were Catholic for a majority of history, but then they became Protestant and there were entire sections of Europe that switched over to the Protestant faith. And so it wouldn't make sense to say that America is being blessed for doing the same things that others were doing before us. Um, and, and yet we're special because we're doing those same things. Um, you know, somebody might say, well, the Catholics, you know, they weren't, they weren't, uh, Catholicism wasn't right. So because of that, God couldn't bless him. And then America is blessed for being Protestant, but there's European nations that were also Protestant. So we cannot say that that's what makes America unique because there's an entire section, uh, at least at that point in history, that entire section of the world was Christian. And unfortunately, you know, Catholicism persecuted dissenters until the, the Protestants got established and then they started persecuting people. And the people the Protestants persecuted ran away and, and established themselves here in America and, and they started persecuting people that disagreed with them. So so this 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 sort of approach to Christianity where where people sort of impose their ideas on others and persecute those that disagree, um, you know, it was there and it ended up coming here as well. So the question is what then makes America special? What makes us different or better um, to whatever degree because it could be said that we're better. And the answer is actually the opposite of what we might expect. What made America thrive wasn't the fact that it was Christian but it was the fact that it wasn't Christian. It was the, the very fact that America created an environment where religion wasn't imposed on people the way it was in both the Catholic and the Protestant nations of the whole world, that's what made it thrive, that's what made it succeed. So uh, to use an illustration here, <clears throat> what we did, what America did here is that we created a space, a common space where people can come from many different perspectives and they can be accepted wherever, whatever religion they have, whatever philosophy they have, whatever moral framework they have, they could be as ex accepted as long as they, they can live their life within certain parameters. In other words, you know, if, if any one religion comes here and they have certain rules and obligations for that religion that end up causing problems for everybody else, then that, that is not allowed. You know, you, you cannot, they cannot enforce their rules, they cannot enforce their ideas on us any more than we can enforce our ideas on them. But as long as people are able to coexist within this, this space of tolerance and freedom, then people are allowed to, to live their faith, they're allowed to, to live their own points of view, their own morality. Uh, however they view life, they're given the freedom to do so. And it is within this context that America thrived. Uh, so this is this is simply because it is what happens when people are allowed to be free. When people are free, they're, when they're accepted, when they're respected, when they're protected by the law, when they're allowed to be whoever they want to be, that's when they live their best life. Regardless if we, with, within our moral framework, feel that they're doing things the, the best way possible. If we allow them to do what they feel they need to do, that's when they thrive. That's when they're successful. That's when they work the hardest. That's when they 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 are their their best and in the way they live their life. Um, now, even when it comes to the laws that we've had here, the laws were intended to be uh, mutually advantageous. 
So people coming from different perspectives were subjected to laws, but those laws benefited them as well. So for example, if somebody, um, you know, somebody was a violent person, the law prevented them from, from harming other people. But at some point in life, they might get older, they might get weaker, and they could be sub subject to somebody else's violence and the law protected them as well. So it was to their benefit for the laws to exist, even though they themselves would have preferred to be able to go around and, and hurt and abuse others, right? So uh, the laws that we have apply to everybody. Everybody is benefiting. You know, we have laws of contract and laws of property, and this makes it possible for people to, to have an agreement and, and conduct and do their business. So for example, if I'm, if, if I'm somebody who's, who wants to cheat and, and, and steal from other people, I might not be happy that there's a contract law in place where I could be sued. But later on, somebody else might want to take advantage of me. And then I, I would want those laws to be in place so I can take them to court and say, no, they're, they're taking advantage of me, right? So um, the laws are created in such a way so that they appeal to everyone regardless of their perspective, where they're coming from. Um, not only this, but this, this uh, context of freedom is actually the most advantageous context for the gospel as well. Because when you preach the gospel, when you share the gospel with people, <clears throat> and they have the freedom to, to accept or reject what you have to say, when they do accept it, they accept it from their own free will. And then it actually benefits them and it makes a difference in their life. When they don't have the freedom to choose and it's forced on them, it doesn't help them at all. And it's it's not in any way better than if they had not chosen it at all. So the this, this context that America has established where uh, we're not enforcing one specific religion, but everybody's allowed to to coexist and you know and to, to have their own perspectives, their own points of view, their own moral frameworks. It's it's also beneficial to the spreading of the gospel, even though that's counterintuitive. So by not forcing morality on freedom, uh, by not forcing a certain morality on people, and by protecting their freedom, even though it seems like uh, <clears throat> it's counterintuitive to what you would do to to extend the spread of Christianity, it actually benefits. Uh, people from the perspective of true Christianity. If you're looking at Christianity from the perspective that I, I outlined earlier, where you want to sort of conquer the world and push your Christian perspective on everybody until you force them to become better people so Jesus can come, then sure, if you come from that perspective, it makes sense to, to force your morality on others. But from the biblical perspective, what makes sense is to provide a context of freedom. Uh, Jesus was talking to, to, to some people about how there will come a time when, when the people that try to kill you are gonna be thinking that they're doing God's service, right? It applies here, here as well, that a lot of times, because this, this idea is counterintuitive, people think they're doing God's service by, by fighting for morality, when in fact what they're doing is they're fighting against God by forcing their own morality on the general public and making it harder for them to accept the gospel because now, uh, it, the, the whole idea is being forced on them and it's not something they're choosing freely. So this, this tendency towards religion op religious oppression is actually a return to the dark ages. It's actually a return to a condition where Christianity was not at its best. Um, a lot of people today 
have a certain hermeneutic of history where they think that things went from from bad to better when you know Christianity took over the empire and and eventually began to spread and and become the official religion but in, in reality they went from it went things went bad because like I said earlier Christianity became a tool of oppression the gospel became a tool of oppression a, a tool for mani uh, manipulating people and for controlling society and uh, people today that are fighting to restore Christian principles to society are actually taking us back to that state of things in the dark ages where things weren't good and, and were not viewed positively by God as we understand the scriptures. So the way a lot of times people work is by coming up with wedge issues, you know, like if you have this, if you're trying to break into, into a door or something to, to your house and you get this wedge and you hammer it in and it kind of creates this space where you could force yourself in, um, people use morally ambiguous issues as a way to, to reinstate this, this sort of Christian oppression on society that, that people came to America to get away from. And, and it's, it's all the common issues that we hear in politics all the time. Now we're coming to, to the situation of modern politics. And I'm speaking specifically for conservative politics, Republican politics that are always bringing up all these moral issues. So for example, abortion. A lot of times to Christians, the idea of abortion seems, seems like, well, yeah, you know, uh, we believe in the sanctity of life. We need to fight for the rights of the unborn and all this stuff. But from a civic perspective, what this is actually doing is, is imposing a, a certain group's morality on the general public. And it's actually fighting against those elements that ha have made America the kind of place where people wanna, uh, where people thrive and, and, and what has made America successful. <clears throat> so why is that? Let, let's take just a couple of minutes to, to look at the question of abortion. When we, when we look at the question of life and death and what constitutes killing and what constitutes murder, we ask the question in terms of personhood. You know, can we assign personhood to this entity? So for example, you know, if somebody kills an animal, somebody kills a deer, somebody runs over a cat, because we don't consider that a person, you know, obviously there, there are different species, but, but we don't consider that murder even though uh, killing has taken place. Now, we could apply that to human beings as well. You know, if we, if we take somebody who's, who's brain dead, who's on a, on a ventilator, who's being kept alive by machines, but has absolutely no chance of coming, coming back to themselves and, and essentially uh, the machines are just forcing them to stay alive even though the body is ready to, to turn off on its own. Uh, we don't consider it murder for somebody to decide to turn the machines off. Because at that point, the, 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 the idea of personhood is no longer there. The, the person's brain has been damaged. They're, they're not going to be themselves again. Uh, they're not going to be able to, to wake up out of their coma and so on. So we're, we don't consider that, uh, that situation. We don't label that as murder if the, the family or the medical facility decides to turn off the ventilator and let the person die. So the question is, what do we do at the beginning as the beginning section of, 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 of life? Um, so 
are we able to assign personhood to those, those very first few days or weeks after conception? And when you look at what is actually happening, what we're dealing with physically is just a couple of cells that connect and then start multiplying and, and growing. But for, for several days and weeks, um, what we have is just a very complex collection of cells. We don't have anything that resembles a human being. We don't have a nervous system. We don't have uh, any kind of, uh, anything resembling a brain or anything like that, uh, a source of pain or feeling or anything. So for a lot of Christians, what they reason is that even though the physically what is happening on the physical level is that all you have is a collection of, of cells. What is happening in the background is that you have a soul that God created at the moment of conception. Now, if you, if you really look at Christian history, the, the idea that the soul is created at the moment of conception doesn't really have a basis in anything. There's, uh, there's theologians or I've, I've come across people that have argued for the idea that the soul is created later down the line, not immediately at conception. So even that idea is ambiguous, but at least a lot of Christians base their, their, their concept of personhood on the soul, and they believe the soul is, is created when, when um, the egg is fertilized. And because of that, they believe that you're killing a person when you're destroying that initial uh, cell that, is, that has been uh, developed. Uh, but the thing is, this is a purely religious conviction. So, you know, somebody who doesn't believe the same thing doesn't have this idea of personhood being connected to a soul that happens to be created at the moment of conception. Uh, and then you have other people who believe, well, regardless of the soul, the Bible says that God um, formed you in the womb and God knew you before you were born and all this stuff. But all of these are religious convictions and people that don't have these convictions don't have a basis to say, well, uh, personhood can be assigned at the moment of conception. They might say you can assign personhood to, personhood to this uh, embryo further down the line, maybe once it starts developing a nervous system, developing its brain and start, starts to form into a body, you can say, okay, it's, be, it's starting to become a person. But earlier in the... Um, in the development process, you cannot assign assign personhood to this to this entity. So, because of that, you cannot do this on a purely uh, civil basis. You have to end up invoking religious arguments, religious elements to make your argument for abortion, and this becomes a way to start to force religious morality on the general public and to move us away from this space of of of. Uh, mutual acceptance and tolerance. So that's one example. Another example is, is all the issues that have to do with uh, homosexuality, LGBTQ+, and all this, uh, transsexual, all, all these things. Um, these are also elements that conservative politics use to push their, their religious agenda in society that cannot be defended on a purely uh, secular basis. <clears throat> so for example, uh, you know, they might say, okay, sure, if somebody is gay, uh, we're not going to get into their business and tell them and, and force them or tell them who they can and cannot sleep with, uh, but they cannot get married. But the problem is, you know, if two people, two homosexual individuals want to be together, there's no reason for the government to forbid them to, to be able to have the same rights as a married couple. So, for example, the the ability to 
um, to do their taxes together and, and to, to file jointly and, and get the, the tax cuts that they get, that other people get by being together. Uh, and also maybe uh, if, if somebody, <clears throat> you know, somebody wants to pass their property on after they die, they should be able to pass their property to their partner and they should be able to adopt children and, and, and deal with all, this, all these issues that governments are there to, to address. So we have no business in, in, in telling the government that, no, these two people, because they're, they're both male or they're both female, they cannot have those same privileges that we have when it comes to property and, and other rights and taxes and so on. Um, so then they say, okay, so then let's just have a civil union, you know, um, let's not call it marriage. But the problem is that as far as the state is concerned, there's no difference between marriage and civil union because the state is not concerned with the religious aspect of marriage. You know, marriage is, is, has two parts. One part is, is dealing with, with civic elements and one part is dealing with the religious elements. But the state has no interest in the religious elements because it's outside of this, its jurisdiction. And the civil elements are exactly the same for a marriage as they are for a civil union. So it, it ends up creating unnecessary uh, problems. And it's, it's a form of discrimination that, that cannot be justified legally. So um, when, when religious groups, um, conservative elements in society are fighting against um, LGBTQ issues and, and gay marriage and all these things, they're actually using this as a way to introduce religious oppression. Uh, another, another issue that, that I'm gonna mention just briefly is the issue of Israel and given Israel special treatment. Now people will say, well, you know, I rather support a democracy than support some of the other neighboring nations that are, uh, you know, have various dictators and all these things. But that's not the issue. The issue is, should we support Israel more than we support other allies, other democratic allies that we have, you know, other, other nations that also, you know, we have allegiance with because we have similar principles. Some conservative Christian elements uh, argue for supporting Israel even beyond that because there's some kind of special nation because they still have this covenant dispensational mentality where God is still working with Israel in a special way. But again, this is a, this is a religious infringement here as well because um, it's just some people's religious convictions that are affecting their public policy. So all these elements are being used as a way to, um, to create a precedent. Basically what it's saying is that my religious convictions or my moral convictions are more important than somebody else's freedom. Uh, and they're just creating precedent and taking us back to a state of things that we've already had. We have an entire history, an entire historical experiment of what it is like when Christianity becomes the dominant perspective in society and they force their moral values on everybody else. We have, we have it from the Catholic perspective and we have it from the Protestant perspective. And we came here to this land to get away from that, to have a space where everybody's free to, to follow whatever version of Christianity or some other religion or no religion at all and be left at peace and, and have laws in place that just deal with issues that affect everybody and, and don't get into people's uh, personal business. So if we're talking about making America great again, this 
attempt to push morality on society robs America of that great making element. <clears throat> um, this, this is what differentiated us from, from the Christian world, uh, what, you know, whether Catholic or Protestant uh, in Europe that we came out of. Okay, so um, the next thing I wanna address here is the issue of information because one of the biggest problems we have today is that we're in the midst of an information war. And there's several reasons for why this is happening. And this whole lecture is for the purpose of addressing uh, one of the foundational reasons behind all this, all this uh, <clears throat> uh, difficulties that we're having today when it comes to how we understand the events happening around us. So let's think quickly about how we get informed, how we, we gain access to our information. Now, let's suppose some event happens and we call this event X, you know, something happened out there in the world, uh, whether it's a crime, whether it's some catastrophe, whatever. Um, whenever an event happens, that event is raw data. So for example, I could be out on the street and I could see somebody running up to somebody else and, and shooting them and killing them on the spot, right? That is just raw data, some event happened. Now I can look at this, this raw data and, and place a value judgment on it. I could say, okay, that person killed this other person, it's murder, it's bad, right? If I happen to get more information, I might say, well, no, actually that person committed a crime and this other person was trying to, to chase him down and catch him and they shot him and, and maybe it's not such a bad thing as I initially thought. But you know, the more information we get, the more clear a perspective we, we get on what's happening. And that helps us to, to draw a, a value conclusion, to come to some kind of value judgment on the event. The problem we have is that we, we don't get most of our information directly from the raw data. So what we have is we have a filter and this filter is the new sources that we use. <clears throat> so what happens is, okay, whatever events out there in the world take place, and we don't know about them directly, what we know is how the new sources that we follow reinterpret their events to support their specific narrative. And unfortunately, you could take almost any event and twist it around in such a way so that it seems to still support some narrative that, that, that somebody is spinning. Uh, you know, like when, when you look at the different news sources, they, they talk about the same event, but if you listen to these guys, they present it a certain way. If you listen to these other guys, they present it in a very different way that leads you to, to come to very different conclusions about what has happened. And that's kind of the situation we're in right now where um, we cannot really trust the information that's being presented to us. So what I wanna address is the conservative side of the equation, the Republican side of this news information because there's a trust factor there that is affecting people and how they evaluate the information they're receiving. And the trust factor works something like this. People, people say, okay, we have Democrats and Republicans and we have democratic news sources or news sources that lean, lean more towards the liberal side and we have news sources that lean more towards the conservative side. But people say, well, the Republican side has certain Christian values and has, has a certain Christian moral framework and they're working for the good of society because they're Christian 
and we're also Christians, so we're gonna support them. And because we support them, we're gonna trust the information coming from their news sources more than we trust the information coming from the other side. So what I've been trying to show through all these different things I've talked about so far is that there's actually different Christian perspectives regarding what is happening in history and what God is trying to accomplish. There's different interpretation of history. There's different theological perspectives underlying all this stuff. And just because people claim to be Christian, just because they claim to have certain moral values, does not mean that they're doing what God wants them to do. Does not mean that they're pushing in the right direction. And in fact, what I've tried to show so far is that what people are pushing towards, a lot of the people that claim to be coming from a Christian perspective, is that they're pushing towards a return to the oppression that we've already seen happen throughout history uh, for, for a thousand years to the very type of situation that we here in, in America, in this American experiment, we try to escape away from, get away from. And the reason we created this experiment is to do something different than what had been done be before. And yet people coming at things from the conservative perspective are actually trying to take us back to that original state. Uh, that wasn't great. It wasn't a good situation. That's why we left it and we came here. Um, so we have to reinterpret our basis for trust, trust in, in the various parties and trust in the new sources that we follow. So how do we go about staying informed in this situation? Well, uh, we cannot have any partisan trust, religious trust factor. In other words, if for whatever reason, somebody thinks that one party is more in line with God than the other party, they're making some kind of mistake. Something is wrong there in their understanding, their theological understanding, their overall understanding. Uh, they don't have, there is no basis for, for thinking that one party is more in line with Christianity than the other. Uh, the, you know, again, people that have different Christian perspectives, whether they're coming from Catholic, evangelical, some other Protestant perspective, their theology is different and, and their theology might lead them to that conclusion. But when we come at things from a scriptural perspective and we, we base our ideas on this scriptural framework that I've, I've been describing, then we, we, we have to have a, a different understanding of, of how God relates to society and what God's plans are and recognize that God is not moving or, or trying to lead things into, into the direction that some of the, these Christian groups are trying to move things because they're actually moving things back back to the way things were before where, where people were actually oppressed by, the, by, by Christian values and Christian moral frameworks and uh, taken advantage of and manipulated and, and enslaved by them for, for an extended period of time throughout Christian history. Okay, so, so there is no partisan trust factor. You cannot trust one party more than another. And you gotta realize that people in government are there not because, not necessarily because they care a lot about these issues, but they have their own uh, agenda, their own goals, their own things that they're trying to accomplish on both sides. They're not, one side is not better than the other or more holy than the other. One side is not more evil than the other. Um, the news channels, they don't really care about a lot of these issues either. They're there for the ratings because that's how they make money. So they tell people the things they wanna hear, whether it's for one side or the other. And uh, we shouldn't just trust them wholesale because they're, they're saying things that sound Christian to us. 
Um, so what we should do is we should try to get as close to the original um, raw piece of data as possible when it comes to news. Instead of, you know, if, if we could go and get our information as closely to the source as possible, that's what we should aim for. We should have a, use a variety of news sources instead of listening to just one, one side of the equation. We should listen to the news and not the commentary because one of the problems we have today is that news entities are, are subject to certain, certain standards. They cannot just get up there and make up stuff. They cannot just get up there and lie to people because they're gonna immediately they're gonna be sued and they're gonna have to pay out a lot of money. So they have to report the news. But all this commentary uh, elements that that are connected to the news, you know, you could you could sit there and watch the news and then you get to hear somebody's commentary about the news. Those are not subject to the same regulation. So they could come up with all kinds of stuff, and because it's just entertainment. Uh, they could say whatever they want and they're not held accountable for it. So we need to, to stay away from the commentary and just focus on the news um, and stay away from all the fringe media. I mean, there's all kinds of people, some more famous than others that, that are constantly interpreting things in the worst possible way, coming up with all kinds of conspiracy theories, coming up with all kinds of stuff and nobody holds those people accountable and they could say whatever they want. And, all we're gonna get by listening to those guys is we're gonna be misinformed and we're gonna become paranoid and, and scared and constantly looking over our shoulder thinking somebody's out to get us. Um, we, cannot, we cannot think one particular party is, is evil and the other one isn't. Uh, people on both sides of the divide have their own goals, their own vested interests and essentially, uh, whatever direction they're pulling in, at some point, the next party is gonna take control and they're gonna pull in the opposite direction and things are just gonna go back and forth like this. Okay, so coming back to <clears throat> the last slide here, the Soa Scriptura paradigm, it, it, it flips the narrative <clears throat> for people coming at things from the conservative perspective because it gets rid of this um, unjustified link between true Christianity and a certain party. There's no reason to, to think that Christianity is more in favor to one party than, than the other. Uh, we don't have a Christian nation anymore. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. God has finished his work with any particular nation at the cross. Israel did what they were supposed to do. Uh, from this point on, God favors everyone, all the different nations in the world, and especially working with individuals, trying to get them into the kingdom. Um, there's a lot of theological baggage that other Christians carry that should not be uh, taken at for granted by people who are trying to, to base their beliefs on, on the Bible alone. Because uh, there, there's uh, all kinds of philosophical and theological and historical reasons for the things that people believe and uh, that affect the way that they, they make their decisions that should not apply to us if we're basing our beliefs on the Bible. <clears throat> there's, there's the reason for this demonstration is to, to the reason why we're, we're still here as part of this cosmic conflict is because we need to understand the insidious of sin and to see how humanity is capable of misusing the gospel and turning it into a tool of oppression. And that's what we have seen for a thousand years. The, the Reformation 
interrupted that process to some degree, but now things are starting to head back in that direction again, and we shouldn't help it along. We shouldn't help things to move back towards the state of things that we're in back in, in the dark ages. If we wanna change the world, the way to change the world is, is through the preaching of the gospel, not to politics. Uh, we cannot force people to be moral. We cannot force people to be Christian. It is a choice they have to make and they have to make it freely or otherwise it doesn't count. Um, we need to give people the freedom to choose for themselves. If we are gonna get involved in, in, in civic matters around us, then what we should be fighting for is to maintain the freedom of people, not to, not to impose our ideals upon them. But we should be fighting against the tendency to, to oppress others uh, by religious means. Um, we, we should value our brothers and sisters in the faith more than party affiliation. So if we belong to a Christian community that is divided down the middle with half of the people being democratic, some, some half of the people being Republican, we should not let politics get the best of us to such degree that we think the other party is downright evil. We cannot have fellowship anymore because of party affiliation. And we should focus our, our, our attention on ministering to both sides equally. We're called here to, to minister to everybody. The, the <clears throat> Republican versus Democrat issue is a localized issue because it just applies to the United States. You know, there's a whole world out there with very different political perspectives. Um, we're not called to get stuck in, 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 uh, in this debate. We're called to, to minister to people on, on all, all sides of, of the political divide. And especially ministers, uh, ministers have no business in pushing a party agenda or, or to, to, to propagate um, a certain narrative that is pushed by one, by one party over another. That's not what we're called to, we're called to, to spread the gospel and to focus on that. Um, and uh, if, we're, if we're committed to, to, to looking at, at the world through the lens of the scripture, through the Sola Scriptura perspective that we've been talking about, then um, that should have an impact on how we, how we interact with the, the world of politics around us. Um, I know that I've covered a lot and I've probably skipped certain things that might have helped to, to fill in the gaps here. But uh, at the same time, I hope it's, it's been helpful and informative and uh, I hope uh, it will help people to, to better navigate some of the issues that um, we're dealing with in, in today's um, charged political context.